As you find your seat, if you would like a handout, uh, the gentleman in the back would like to hand those out. Uh, if you just slide your hand up, we'll get you a copy of our handout for tonight. We'll make sure we get you one. If somebody up here needs one, maybe a couple more. Just slide your hand up, hold it up so they can see you, and they'll bring a copy up to you. And make sure you get a handout for us to walk through tonight as we wrestle with more of life's big questions through the book of Ecclesiastes. And on this nice, cold, rainy night, I guess not too cold, but it's nice and rainy and dark outside as we start to feel fall coming in. And as a part of that, we're going to dive into Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Um, hopefully, as we've walked through this, you know, one of the things you begin to see in the book of Ecclesiastes, while be it somewhat of a philosophical book, a book that wrestles with a lot of these truths, in many ways it's a very real book because it brings up a lot of questions about life that as you wrestle through them, they, the book connects to where you're at. In particular, there is um, our topic tonight, particularly is speaking on the topic of death. Death is meaningless without Jesus. And um, while this is not a topic that you typically would put on a subject for a night you'd want to talk about, as Christians, this honestly is something that uh, should bring us great joy uh, in the Christian life, to think about one day to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There is something great and wonderful about that. Um, but what we have a tendency to do, particularly with death, because it, it's, a very, um, it's a very emotional subject. I mean, even as I start to talk about it, uh, for some of you in the room, it will bring up emotions of thinking about a loved one or someone that's passed. Uh, and maybe even for you personally, uh, some of you who worry or have a lot of, in your life, things that you worry and concerned about, uh, some of you in this room will, have, will deal with a, a fear of death. It will actually be something you think about fairly often. Um, and typically, personalities, I don't know what, uh, how your personalities are built, um, but typically, personalities kind of split one of two ways when we approach something that you might could say is, is something that we're not sure of at the minimal, but something we could be afraid of. There's a sense at which there's a, there's a bit of unknown, and just as you face death, what is, how do you approach that? How do you see it? And uh, the personalities, I think, split two different ways. You either become, some of you are the uh, happy-go-lucky, fly by the seat of your pants, let's just live life today, I'm going to not think about anything I'm afraid of. Typically, you're happy, enjoying the day, you, you don't worry about much. You are a person that has a tendency to take responsibility and things that you're afraid of and just push it to the side, let's enjoy the moment. So some personalities are built that way. More of this kind of laid back, just roll with the punches, uh, ignore something in front of you. And I think the other default we run into is that we take something like death and then we, we overthink about it. We, we worry about it. It becomes an obsession. It becomes a weight on our soul. You know, you, you probably typically do this with most things about life if you're on these either been Either you're wound so tight because you carry everything with you all the time and worry about everything that's going on, or you're on the other extreme where you just kind of push all the problems off. 
when in fact, we're really looking for somewhere in the middle, right? We don't want to be overly worried to where it's paralyzing and in many ways, you know, harmful to you. And then also at the same time, we don't want to be a person that just ignores the truth. We want to be somebody who can take a subject as difficult as death may be and take it head on. In particular, Christians were able to do that with great joy. And so here's what I'd like to do tonight. I'm going to take uh, Ecclesiastes 9. We'll just be in verses uh, 1 through 10. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 10. The verses are pretty much there in front of you. I've tried to put them on the handout. And then uh, at the very end, I'm just going to rifle off some things in particular for Christians of how uh, we should see death differently. This will be kind of take the moment as I walk through it. I'll end looking at a Christian's view of it. So hopefully it'll be encouraging to you by the time we particularly get to the end. Uh, but what I like to do is at the very beginning wrestle with the difficulty of the subject. Because in many ways, uh, death can be a very worrisome thing that sits out in front. W what happens after you die? It, it can be something that is a fairly difficult subject for you to even think about. I mean, Honestly, even as I talk, you, you may be sitting there thinking, I, I really don't want to think on this for a few minutes. But in many ways, to process through some of your questions can actually provide some real peace in your life. So let's first take the Solomon, Solomonic approach here of saying, well, let's just, let's run down the negative side. If, I, if, I'm, not a, if I'm not a Christian, if not, where I'm at, what, what's going on? What happens in my life? And he says here, uh, the first point is, death can render all life's actions meaningless. There's a sense at which, if you look at death, you can start to think, well, why bother? I mean, when it's all said and done, two, three hundred years from now, who's actually going to remember anything that I did? Who's actually going to be thinking about that? So there's a, there's a level at which if you start looking at this without any sort of Christian perspective, death can be something that's very discouraging. So let, let's roll that around for just a minute. So forgive me. Uh, this is part of what Ecclesiastes does. It draws out and speaks to some of our thoughts, and then we'll turn and address it as Christians. So take, take the bad road with me for a minute, uh, and with here in um, chapter 9, and then we'll turn and take the good road. Let's, let's start looking in verse 1 here. He says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. So he's kind of coming to the end of this. He's been, he's been running every little thing, trying everything along the way. And then he says, How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man, dot, man does not know, both are before him. And then he says this, It is the same for all since the same event happened. So just to put a caveat there, he's going to expound on this more. When he's talking about the same event happening, it means everybody's dead. Like, we will all face death. So when he's saying the same event happens, meaning that death sits in front of everyone. No matter, and this is something to just, I'll just pause here so you can kind of mark your spot and I'll pick it back up, is that no matter how you see it, there's nobody in this room that's 150 years old. And you even think about in the Gospels, 
even though Jesus healed a lot of people, they still all came back around and died. His healings weren't there to make them physically live forever. It was there as a representation of what he was doing spiritually, to show his power, show who he was. But ultimately, there's this kind of ominous thing that sits behind it. So when, when, when uh, he's looking at this idea of, well, what about death? He says, you know what? No matter what happens, everybody faces this ending. It, it's, it's, nobody eludes death. Nobody dodges this part of life. And so for us, it, when, when that happens, he says, well, well, it doesn't even matter. Look, he lists off six things and their contrasts right there following it. He says, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. And the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is also he who shuns an oh. So it goes back and forth talking about good people and bad people. And at the very end of the day, no matter how he sees a person living, death always sits at the end of life. Even if you were to, what we say today, profess faith in Christ, you're still going to face a physical death at the end of your life. So he sees this as a reality. Wonders, well, why is this the case? You know, um, the Bible speaks a little bit about this uh, because it's interesting to, to even think about like prosperity gospel and saying if you just follow God, then all these good things are going to happen to you. Or the people that say they're faith healers. And I think I heard this said by, I think it was Albert Moeller or somebody said it, that the first faith healer that's 300 years old, I'll start buying what he's selling. Right, so there's a sense of you can sell it for so long, but ultimately death will equalize the whole thing out. And so all of this comes, to, to draw this to a gospel point, all of that is because death is a penalty for our sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a, there is a death on us because of our sin. Even in Ecclesiastes, they'll say there's established a time for a man to die. He knows there's a spot where man will die. So, so we know this is real, and we know no matter what, even if you want to hold to this prosperity gospel or whatever, it's not going to take away this physical death that sits on us. He even gives this analogy in verse 4. Look at the two he uses here. He who is joined with all the living has hope. And then he uses this, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. I thought the book made a good point here uh, because the Bible does say dogs are better than cats, uh, even if it's a big cat. I affirm all of that. Appreciate those amens. <laughs> so, in reality, what's the, what's the comparison here? At the time, you, you know, you think, Today, when we think about a dog, they're all domesticated, living in your house. You're probably going to dress them up for Halloween tomorrow night. You've got all these, like, when you think about a dog, they're all kind of domesticated. But, but, but in reality, uh, you go back to this time period, a dog is more of a scavenger. You're going to see, think of like a wild dog in that regard. And so you kind of have this wild scavenger dog, and then you think of the, this big, 
great stately lion. And the point is that uh, he's looking at it and saying, wouldn't it be better just even if you were a scavenger dog to be alive than to be a dead lion? Like once you're dead, all those advantages are gone. So even as he looks at this whole thing and says, well, if I were to play this out and say, man, that guy's got everything, it doesn't matter. Everything is equalized when you die. And um, in many ways, to, to pause on this kind of conversation we've had here, I'll, um, there is a modern world that does not want to address this question. When I talk about avoiding it, people don't want to think or talk about this answer. They, they, they don't want to address it. They want to ignore this concept because they don't want to have anything to do with this terrible ending of death. There's no real answer for them. So um, oftentimes I think most people go through life, even though they know this big problem is there, they go through life trying to convince themselves this actually isn't on the radar. I don't know if you do this. Sometimes I'm known to do it. Uh, whenever you get sick or you start not feeling well, you think that if you just tell everybody how great you feel, then you'll actually be better. I mean, you could be running a fever, and you're like, oh, man, it's just a little sinus deal. It's not a big deal, right? Trying to convince everybody, as long as you ignore it, keep pressing through it, then you're not actually sick. There's a sense at which I think uh, in our culture, with the idea of one day there will be this death at the very end, most, most people are just, I don't even want to talk about this. I just want to ignore the fact that this is a reality at the end of life. I think I've shared this before in here, but there's a, there's a place over, my wife and I went years ago to Italy. When we went, there's this uh, monastery, it was in this basement of this church, and one of the things they did, it was very creepy, I don't recommend this at all, but because they wanted to have a real clear perspective about life, they, when somebody would pass away, and you know the body would rot away, and then the bones would be left, they took the bones, and there's this whole basement where they have built all these designs with the bones of everybody who's passed away. Now, it's creepy. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting this idea at all. But one of the reasons they did it is because they wanted to have a clear understanding of exactly where they stood in time. And so when they looked up there, they understood that there was only a certain amount of time, and one day their bones would be up on the wall, right? I, again, weird, not the way to do it, but... In other words, it illustrates the point of there's a level at which we just want to close our eyes and turn the other way and say, I don't even want to think about that. But in fact, it's a very real part of our lives, and as Christians, something that we can in many ways embrace. So let's talk about, so if that's the case, this is the downside. Death seems to just kind of make, feel life point, make life feel pointless. In fact, it can be so ominous, you just want to avoid the conversation. So let's press it to what death might do to help us. Here's the second point. Death can render all of life's, life's actions meaningful. Death has a way of making you see life different. In a, in a different view and differently, you can see exactly the perspective of how things are. There's a way about when you see the course of your life, it changes how you see things. It changes how you enjoy today. It changes how you enjoy the people around you. There's a story told in the book, and 
I think we can all relate to something similar to it, is that you can probably remember a time in your life where you have been around or seen or heard of somebody that was maybe young or tragically that was around you that passed away. And when that happened, what that did is drove you to the people around you and you hugged your loved ones a lot tighter that night when you went to bed. There's a sense at which when you saw that, you began to treasure what the day before you took for granted. So there's a perspective when you understand there's this end to life that Christians have in a different manner. They understand these things are different when we know there's an end. So let me walk through a few that Solomon gives here. First, he says to eat your bread with pleasure. So, uh, notice the verse here, go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So, it's interesting here, I talked about this, I think a couple weeks ago with you guys, about learning to enjoy the gifts God has given you, and in particular, he'll say that even though you know there's this end to life, that while you are currently here right now, and you sit down and eat a really good meal, enjoy it. Enjoy the gift God has placed in front of you. In many ways, I, I was uh, talking to somebody earlier this week, and they brought up this analogy from C.S. Lewis who talks about the sun. And in a sense, when you go outside, and I don't know if you've uh, you know, been outside and you see, maybe sometimes if you're in a spot where the sun rays come through a building and maybe even there's enough dust in the room, you can kind of see the sunlight coming down through the top and you can see that. But what that does is that you don't just sit there and look at the sun ray and just think about the ray. You see the sun ray, and then you think about the sun that it sends it down. It's only a reflection of what is coming down on you. The same way if you're somewhere and the sun comes down and hits your arm on a cold day and warms you up. You're, you don't just think about the warmth. You look up and you see the source of the gift that was coming down. In the same way it ought to be that when you sit down at a good meal, eat, um, eat something that you enjoy, it ought to bring about in you this reflection to where you turn your mind to think, Man, Lord, thank you so much for this sweet gift of today. I, I may not have it tomorrow. We're not guaranteed life into tomorrow or next week or next month. But for that moment, while you sit there and the Lord has blessed you with that sweet meal that sits in front of you, enjoy it. Enjoy what the Lord has placed in front of you. Here's, a, here's another one that I think is interesting. Uh, this one's a little more difficult as a Baptist, right? Um, second, he says to drink your wine with a glad heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Right, so this one's a little more difficult for me to do, but I'm going to tackle it. I'll say this before, I'm not an advocate for drinking alcohol. I personally completely abstain from it. And uh, I don't intend for this moment to be, I'm not going to speak particularly about alcohol. Here's how I will apply it. If you want to talk about it more later, we can talk about it offline. Here's how I'll just simply say, not only should you enjoy a meal, there are drinks in your life uh, that are enjoyable in the sense of a nice cold glass of sweet tea or a lemonade on a hot day a nice good cup of warm coffee on a nice cold morning. Whatever it may be, there's a sense in which God has given you both food and drink that you can enjoy. These should be things that bring your heart to, in those moments, go, God, I, I may not get this drink tomorrow. I may not have this food in front of me tomorrow. But right now, for this moment and for today, I give you praise and glory for this moment. Let, let's press it a little bit further. Third, he tells them to wear white all the time. Okay, what does this mean, right? 
He says, let your garments be always white. So white um, would represent like festive clothing here. It would be something you would wear if you were going to party or celebration. It would be your nice clothes that you were to wear somewhere. In a, in a sense, what he's saying here is not only enjoy food, enjoy getting dressed up. Enjoy wearing a nice piece of clothing. While you're here, there are things the Lord has blessed you with. Maybe you don't like getting dressed up. Maybe you just like wearing sweatpants and a T-shirt around the house. Some of you have workout clothes that are the most comfortable to sit around the house. You enjoy sitting around in them more than you do working out, right? And so, but, but those kind of things, and sometimes you pick up something that's real soft, it's comfortable, right? It's a, that's typically what I use my workout clothes for more than actual working out, right? <laughs> so, but in other words, you, there are oftentimes you pick up something, a nice soft blanket, something or, that is enjoyable in those regards, a nice piece of clothing, getting, and there's something about getting dressed up. That all of that is what I'm saying goes into, there are ways in which you can enjoy parts of life. It's not bad. Um, number four, or part, or number D, letter D, fourth, he says to put oil on your head. He says, let not oil be lacking on your head. So this would have been in a dry and arid region. Uh, would have been like, oil would have been somewhat like lotion, so your skin would be drying out. Probably would have a good smell to it. So there's a sense of here, in just simply enjoying one, you put some oil on your head, moisturize, and you smell good. So now you're eating a good meal, you're uh, dressed up, nice outfit, and you smell good. You got this oil on, which then leads to the fifth one. Letter E, it says fifth, he says to enjoy your wife. It says enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. See, look, I got all kinds of great topics tonight, guys. Right? <laughs> Alcohol. Join your wife. You know, this is a biblical idea. 1 Corinthians 7 encourages believers to enjoy sex inside of marriage. It's a gift from God that should be to his glory and to the enjoyment of a married couple. And, um, you know, somebody pointed out this thing kind of builds. You get dressed, take, go to dinner, you get dressed up, you know, put a little oil on your head, helps the guy out a little bit, you know. And so all of that builds to this point. But, but the, here's what I would say is that oftentimes in our culture, even when we bring up a topic like this, so much of our culture is sexualized and perverted in the sense of this regard to where you almost just feel like the topic is somewhat dirty or somewhat bad. But in fact, the Bible presents this in a way that's very honoring and, and brings great glory to him and is something that should be enjoyed by believers. It's, it's not a bad thing in this regard. The sixth one here says, enjoy your work and activities. So as, you, as you're part of life here, walking through life, what are some other things you enjoy? Fifth one, sixth one here, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. You know, oftentimes if you have a fairly hard job or you find uh, your job to be difficult at times, it's tempting to think 
man, I wish I just could take a nap this afternoon and take a break from the work that I've been given. It's tempting to think, man, I just wish I could. Some mornings you wake up, it's a cold day, it's a rainy day, and you're just like, man, I just want to hit snooze and lay in bed and not deal with any of this, right? So it's tempting to begin to see, particularly if your job is stressful or difficult, begin to see that your work or whatever task is put ahead of you is something you should not enjoy or difficult. But God has made you to where you should have great joy and glory in the work that he's put in front of you. There's a sense at which uh, there's great joy to be found in doing something and doing it well and it being pleasing and honoring to the Lord. There's something really satisfying about it. So you either need to find a hobby or a job or something to do under the sun that is pleasing to the Lord. The Bible speaks about work as unto the Lord. You are supposed to give your life to something. You know, there's something really satisfying about doing work, being tired, and being able to look at the work and see it done. I think the pastor's talked about this, but I feel the same way. Oftentimes, ministry... Uh, does not always come out with finished work, right? People don't become finished work. If you want to see somebody grow in the Lord, typically there's never a moment you're like, wow, we got that one buttoned up, he's good to go. You know, there's always, some, there's always more to do. So there's oftentimes, I, I enjoy my yard. I like to be able to cut the grass and have a nice green yard. I'll sit back, you look at it, it looks done. If you Maybe you have different hobbies, crafts, or whatever you may do. There's something really satisfying when you've done this hard work, you get it done, you step back, and then, I don't know, sometimes I just want to stare at it, right? You just want to look at it and think, man, that was enjoyable to do. You, you started with a product, you finished with something else, and you can sit back and look and say, man, that's done. And it's satisfying to you. So the Lord has made you to where you can enjoy the labor that is in front of you. And so to, to kind of press around this for a minute, to say, um, oftentimes, I went through a bunch of things there, food, clothing, all kinds of different stuff that you can enjoy under the sun. I think that, I think the Christian life, and then I'll talk this last point, but I want to take a little side route. The Christian life often gets put in the category, if you want to live a holy life, then that means it's not a fun life. All the fun gets zapped out of it. Holy living is not fun living. It's not enjoyable. God's not going to make sure you're happy while you do it. It's going to be pure duty. You're just gritting your teeth. Just, ah, I'm just going to be holy today. I'm not going to do any of those fun things that my heart wants to do. I'm just going to stick the course, right? That's kind of what it gets couched at in our culture. But, but in fact, God is the reverse in the sense of he desires for you to have great joy in following him. So let me think about, just for a moment, I don't know if you've thought through scripture and I could expand this more, but have you ever thought about when God gives commands in the Bible, oftentimes he gives great blessing to you when he, you follow them? Like there's some great joy behind it? Uh, let me just, I'll take a chance here for a moment. I'll open it up. What's a command in the Bible that comes with a great blessing or reward behind it? Anybody? Right, honor your father and mother, and then your days will be long. You'll be, you'll be blessed because you honor mom and dad. Right, it's not just, just do what mom and dad says. The Lord actually knew that you wanted a reward. Like, there's something good behind it, so he's, he actually put a reward. 
I, I would even say heaven is this, right? I, I know people say, don't become a Christian just, for, just so you can go to heaven. I, I agree with that. I don't think it's that simple. However, I think a part of becoming a Christian is wanting to go to heaven. There's something wrong with you if you became a Christian and some portion of that is not because you want to spend eternity in this joyous presence of the Lord. Like, there ought to be a part of your heart that desires that. Something very good. So, so I just want to pause on this to say, even though there's this kind of death that sits at the end of it, sometimes it can feel pointless, the Lord, is des Lord desires in the middle of this for you to find great joy in Him. You should enjoy being a Christian. You should enjoy the things of Him. You should enjoy following Him. It should bring great happiness to you. And so a part of even the things that I listed tonight are part of His blessing and gift to us. So let me get to the last point here. Jesus delivers from death and gives abundant, eternal life. So I'm going to kind of jump out of this, and I want to speak particularly for Christians. I'm going to talk through a, few, a list here. I'm going to ask, how should Christians look at death? Um... How should you look at the death of other Christians and then for non-Christians? I'll just walk through a list of some points here. Just a helpful way to look at it. Since Jesus is the one that delivers from death, how should you see your death? So if you, how should you look at your own death? Here's the first thing I would say. Don't fear it. Paul says, Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I am to live in the flesh, and that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So for him, he doesn't, doesn't sit here and look and say, well, one day when I die, it's going to be bad. He, in fact, he looks at it and says, there's no reason to fear it. I, I want to be with the Lord. So there's a part of you as a Christian, you should not fear your death. There should not be anything that you fear that's going to happen at the end of your life. The second thing is to have joy in it. To have joy in it. In the sense of, I'm not, I'm not saying that this isn't to be suicidal. You do still love your life. I want to be clear about what Paul was saying. Paul desired life and he desired to be with Christ. I'm not, not saying here to hate life so much you just want to be with the Lord. That, that's wrong. That's, that, that's the wrong way to approach it. You should say, man, I love serving God here and I really want to be with Jesus in heaven. That, that's the right balance. But you should have some sort of joy in the fact that one day all of this suffering will be gone. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We would rather. Something rather joyful to be with the Lord. So as Christians, you shouldn't fear it, and you should have joy in it. If you're thinking about the death of another believer, how should you deal with the death of someone else that's a Christian? We'll start there. Um, the first thing is, it is okay to have sorrow. Sorrow is okay. When, when uh, there's a couple of verses here I'll mention. Acts chapter 8, verse 2, when the devout men buried Stephen, it said they had great lamentation over him. Stephen, when he died, Jesus, you know, stood up for the martyr, and there's this great moment they still mourned his death. Even when, 
Lazarus would pass away before Jesus brought him back. There's a point Jesus wept. So, so it's okay to have sorrow. However, in the midst of that sorrow is joy. Let me show it to you in, um, I think this is uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brother, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Christ Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So a couple pieces I'll say is it says we don't grieve as those who have no hope. So we're still going to grieve. It didn't say don't grieve. It said don't grieve without hope. It's okay to grieve, but make sure there's this great hope that sits on the other side because the Bible has this beautiful description when it says people fall asleep. Now, I think sometimes we miss how beautiful that is. It's like when we die, we're just going to take a short nap. We're just going to fall asleep, wake up with Jesus. It's not this ominous thing. It's this great joy. We're just going to fall asleep and be with the Lord. So there's a level at which we should have sorrow, but yet in the midst of that sorrow, great hope and joy in what we have in the gospel. Now let me end with this one, in particular with death, because it does impact how we approach non-Christians. The first one is we have to come back to the point of sorrow. There is a level that I cannot take away, I'm not going to try to remove, that when a person who is not a believer passes away, it, it does bring sorrow to your heart. I mean, I, there's no way around it. It's going to bring sorrow to start with uh, for any person. But at this point, you, you, you lack this hope that they believe the gospel. Paul feels this so deeply in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. He says, I'm not lying. He says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. He says, great sorrow. He says, unceasing anguish in my heart. Like it never stops. He says, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He says, my brothers who I once knew and was... When he was a, a Jew and following and trying to do all he could, those people that were close to me, it, it brings unceasing anguish to my heart about their lostness. So there ought to be, in every single one of us, a great burden for lost people. So I, I don't mean to be ominous or negative here. I just mean that we ought to wake up and we ought to go to sleep understanding that there are lost people around us and it ought to bring sorrow and anguish to us. Now, I think it's how we have to see it. Because it's a legitimate thing. And it will drive you past the uncomfortability to actually speak the gospel to somebody. So we should have a burden for the law. So sorrow. Here's another one I would mention for non-Christians. Uh, we should approach their death with uncertainty. Here's what I mean. Um, we don't know if that person, um, we don't know if we've, particularly if you've given them the gospel, you have no idea if they in the last moments of their life, life profess faith in Christ. 
Now, I don't want to give some sort of false hope here. I think it's a dangerous thing to say too much on that. However, I can't for sure say, if somebody knew the gospel, that sometime in those last moments, when they really were facing the serious part of their death, that they didn't profess faith in Christ. So you, you don't know. Um, th there's a great story. Um, the lady we had last year uh, for our uh, women's conference, a lady named Rosaria Butterfield, she tells a story about she had come radically to Christ and then um, she was really big on hospitality and the gospel. And so what she did is her mother, who was anti-gospel and hated Jesus, she took the last days of her life, went to the hospital and just loved her and served her. And she was just, uh, in many ways, was just mean and harsh about her Christianity, hateful the whole way through. And because she just loved her and loved her and loved her, this just doesn't happen with everybody. But in the last days of her mom's life, she was radically converted to the Lord. And I'm just saying that to say you just don't know what a person might actually see and do when they're faced with just days from being faced with death. And so when we approach people, we just don't know what they'll decide in the last moments. Here's the thing I would say to you, though, is that's where we have to be faithful to, um, and this is the third one is, I would say, it's motivating to us. In other words, you want to be able to say, I've given them the gospel. I, I think that's what you want to aim for. You, you cannot make a person profess faith in Christ. Donald Whitney speaks about it. He, he says it's like handing out lightning rods in a thunderstorm. Only God's the one that strikes the lightning, but you're handing the lightning rod. You're giving them the gospel. And you've got to trust God to be the one that strikes. But in that moment, though, you want to be able to say, I spoke the gospel to him. And so one of the things that you want to have done, if you, and particularly, I mean, I, I'd say this is probably could be applicable right here in this room right now, that you know somebody in your life. I, I think I've shared this before, probably a couple years ago, my uncle was passing. Um, I had not stayed particularly close to him over the years. And uh, he called me, his, my aunt called and said, I'd like, for, to do his, to do, I'd like for you to do his funeral. And so I said, well, we're coming to the house. We're going to have a chat. And, you know, it's, it's hard for me. I'm, my, I'm a lot younger than my uncle. I went with my dad. My dad went to go with me, and we shared the gospel with my uncle. And pressed him to push his, put his faith in Christ. Eventually, I, I don't think he actually did. Um, but it was motivating to me to say, you know what? I went and shared with him. I, I, and I, I still care, and I pray, and it's heartbreaking and sorrowful. I mean, I, I hate to think about it. But at the same time, I don't sit here and think, man, I wish I'd have driven up there and said something to it. So I just say in your life right now, do you feel like that you have given the gospel in such a way that you've said it and you don't sit around there with any sort of regret no matter what happens to somebody around you? Here's the last thing I'll say is thankfulness. The example here in the, I give is 2 Samuel 1. Even though how terrible Saul was to David, even in his death, David will say nice things about Saul. And um, even if a person's not a believer, because of common grace, you can say some really nice things about them. You, you don't have to write everybody completely off. 
you'd be heartbroken for their eternal destiny, but there's a level at which you can just be thankful you knew them and were blessed by the common grace that was at work in their life. So a lot of people you know, you think, man, that's a nice guy. He may have been lost. But you can be thankful for it. But ultimately, at the core, we should all be motivated. As we look into death, as we look at this life, to have conversations with people. And in many ways, what we're doing now, <clears throat> to circle all the way back to the beginning, is that we're facing a group of people that have no interest in actually thinking about death. They want to avoid it. So what's hard for you is you actually, when you bring it up, they don't want to talk about it. They probably don't ever think about it. But it's a subject for you as a Christian, man, you're ready, right? You can talk about that stuff. You can speak about it in ways with great confidence and joy. And so you need to find ways. Oftentimes, we almost have to bring the question up before we can even begin to answer it. So I think a great question is, have you ever thought about what happens to you after you die? And oftentimes you'll meet people that may have PhDs and all kinds of degrees and are the smartest people you've ever met. But when it comes to talking about spiritual things, they're elementary students. They don't read anything. They've never studied anything. They've never put any thought into it. So they can speak with great intelligence about these subjects. They start talking about that. They talk like a six-year-old studying a subject. They, they do not know these things. So I, I just encourage you, particularly with this subject and when we're sharing the gospel, eternal, weighty matters. We have to engage people, and oftentimes we're going to find more and more today. This is not like it used to be. I think today we'll find more and more people they never have even thought about. We're asking a question they've never put any thought into. And so you have to bring them along just to even ask the question before you answer it with them. So just a couple of things to encourage you with. Let's end with prayer. I like to pray for individuals in your life for a moment. As we pray, I'd like for you, probably as we've talked, you've probably thought of someone, maybe somebody you've shared with or maybe somebody you've not. And maybe as you were thinking about them, I'd like for you to just right now pray for them. And I'd like for you to pray that the Lord would reveal to them their sin and show them Jesus. So just write down your seat. I want you to plead to the Lord for their soul. Now take it one step further and pray for yourself. Pray the Lord would give you opportunity to share with them. Maybe pray the Lord would provide somebody else in their life that would speak the gospel to them if you've somehow struggled to keep that relationship going. And pray the Lord would give you the boldness and the wisdom of how to speak. Heavenly Father, we come to these moments to plead with you for the souls of those we love.
God, many of us now are praying for family members, people we've prayed for for years. Some of us are praying for co-workers and people that we've only known for days. But Lord, we understand what's at stake on the other side of death. We understand the hope found in you, but we also understand the judgment found apart from you. We know this is a serious and weighty matter. And so God, we ask right now for each of these individuals that you would save them. God, we pray that they would find the things of this world to be absolute, absolutely worthless. Give them no satisfaction in any path that they turn. And God, I pray that they would see the sin in their heart. And Lord, in that moment, they would understand they need a Savior. And the Lord, in that moment, you would show them the great and glorious and wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. Help them to see the price he paid for their sin and the forgiveness and the clean slate and all the gifts found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, may you save them. God, we ask for you to do a work in their heart to save them. We understand it is only a work of you. Lord, we pray for us in this room as we try to navigate how to speak the gospel. Lord, even with a lot of individuals, we just don't. It's so hard to know sometimes, and we feel like we're pushing them away, or how much to say and how much not to. Lord, I pray that you'd give us great boldness and burden for their soul. God, I pray you'd give us great wisdom of when to, to be kind and slow in our speech, but give us great wisdom when we need to be bold and strong with the gospel and speak prophetically in their lives. Lord, we ask you would use us as people that are burdened for the lost, to share the gospel as vessels of people bringing the gospel to those that are lost. And we ask, Lord, we ask for a harvest to see people saved around us. We can bring glory to you because we know of what you have done in the lives of those who are around. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.